Hello and welcome to another edition of Black Hills Information Security, talking about news. In this episode, hopefully I'm reading the right show notes this week, we're going to be talking about the NSO, the NSO Zero Day. We're going to be talking about malware hiding in Windows subsystem for Linux, which I think is weird because we've been using it for years now since it literally just came out. And there's some more ransomware, ransomware type things that we just can't get away from because that's what the show becomes, honestly. So sit tight, buckle in, and let's get started. All right. So do we want to jump right into the NSO thing? Because that's literally what we were just talking about. Sure, did it. All right, let's go in. So this NSO Zero Day has been out for a while. Uh, Noah, you were talking about, I think it was a couple of weeks ago that it was discovered, and Apple finally released the patch for the uh, Zero Day. And I think that there's a lot of interesting things about this, right? You have hot nation-state on nation-state Zero Day action. You have an entire market available for that. And what are the ethics around that? You have the actual like uh, kind of business plan if you're somebody like NSO Group and actually writing zero days from things, it is a really tough business plan, um, mainly because you're constantly running into this game of having to come out with additional zero days. And then there's also the ethics of you know a nation state or somebody, let's say law enforcement, having access to zero days. What does that do for privacy and rights, not just in one country, but in all of them? Um, so I think it's a really nuanced kind of approach. So Noah, do you want to start talking about this? Because you said that you've been watching this now. For a couple of weeks, what has kind of been the evolution that you've seen as far as the news cycles over the past, I think it's been like like eight, 10 days since this initially was released to the public that NSO had this? Yeah, I mean, so that's that's the thing that I was kind of talking about as we were starting here is I was like, am I missing something? The actual forced entry article from Citizen Lab was published on September 13th. And the patch for the, hold on a second here. The Darknet Diaries episode, the, 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 the actual Citizen Lab one was published on September 17th or September 13th. But August 31st, there was a Darknet Diaries episode on this. Um, mm-hmm. It just seems like the news cycle has been going really kind of slow. And I was trying to figure out the timelines because it wasn't all quite lining up, obviously, given the fact that I still don't have a full handle on it. But uh, it, it, it's, it's been moving recently now that it's become more public. And of course, now we have a patch from Apple. So it's, it's becoming more known to the public about that, too. But it's just really interesting on that whole timeline of things, especially because the Darknet Diaries episode is dropping so much earlier. But yeah. Well, I do know that Jack t- like puts a lot of time in Darknet Diaries episode. Like it's not something that's just like this that you run to market as quickly as possible. He puts a tremendous amount of editing into it. So, you right. know, he's had that story for I would say for at least at the very minimum a week, maybe a little bit longer, um, whenever you look into you look into kind of how Darknet Diaries episodes are released at all. Yeah. I would say, I mean, probably I mean the week of like the sixteenth or something, even of August. I'm like so now we're talking about it now, but it's it's been kind of known in certain circles for a while, it seems like. Yeah, yeah. And it's also strange. Um, when was the, the actual patch was released yesterday? Or no, last week. Last, last week, week yeah. is so, when all the patches came so out. We had the news two weeks ago, and then Apple got an actual update out like last week. That was a lot of time where this thing was floating around. What I find is interesting is it doesn't appear that anybody reverse engineered this and added it to Metasploit in that time frame, um, <laughs> which, is, which is kind of... 
I could be uh, wrong on I, that. Yeah, well, this this is a pretty advanced attack, right? So there's a couple things here, right? This is, uh, like you said, hot nation-on-nation-state na- attack here, right? So pretty sexy and probably very specific to who's going to be able to use this as opposed to, like, you know, a, Metasco- a Metasploit module, right? Also, it's in the OS, or excuse me, iOS, right? Which mobile attacks are a little bit different. But, a little. Uh, you know, a little, yeah, just a slight yeah. bit. Um, I believe the patch was in Apple's like natural life cycle, like their patch. They didn't do like an out of band patch for this, right? So they just tacked it on to the existing patch that was coming out for iOS 14, right? Um, so, but yeah, it, it was coming. It's probably been in use in the wild for a while, though. Let's be real, right? Well, and there's been a number of articles that reporters have come forward who have actually been breached by this, which I think is interesting. You know, a lot of the people that have been targeted, um, I I believe by Saudi Arabia is who Citizen Lab uh, first saw evidence of this being used. Um, You have activists in various countries, and then you also have reporters that have come forward and said that they've been compromised with this as well. Now, the reason why I find that interesting is if we go to the nation state on nation state action, that is something that's very, very, very specific. There's lots of organizations that do that. In the United States, there's tons of them that are writing zero days, and then the government actually uses those as kind of like ammunition in cyberspace. What I find interesting is a lot of these stories that are coming through are activists and reporters, and that's where this starts to get a little bit wonky. You know, it's not a nation state spying on another nation state. You're actually talking about nation states that are actively spying on their citizens in a way that it isn't just cyber criminals or terrorists or anything like that. And I think that that's what kind of terrifies me whenever you start looking at how this is being used and how exploits like this are used whenever they're sold on the open market. It's shady as hell. And it's it's a yeah. very weird place to be. This is why we need reversible encryption, John. I mean, this, yeah, is, this, is this just sells that whole story, right? Yeah, then, then we don't have to worry about exploits like this anymore, right? And all it takes is one reality winter or one Edward Snowden. It's like, that encryption on all your phones, we said the government, you could trust us. Turns out, no. Um, we, we, we are bad. I think another thing that was an article that was on the list that we didn't talk about last week was kind of bug bounty researchers being disappointed with Apple paying out bug bounties. I mean, it kind of seems like a history of them not paying out as much as other organizations, taking their time to pay them out, maybe like a massive backlog of bugs that hadn't been fixed and patched. So that's kind of like tangential, but like I wonder if that contributes to kind of the slow news cycle for these types of things. Well, well I think okay. there's a lot of things that affect that. But real quick on the bug bounty, like I've I've talked to people who've been working in Apple's bug bounty. Um, they they basically all said it's it's not very rewarding because the only reason you use the bug bounty is if you were trying to like get reputation because you can sell those exploits on the open market for way more to people like NSO Group or even like Project Zero Day, then for way more than Apple's willing to pay out for them as well. Well, I think that gets into a broader problem with the entire Zero Day economy or bug bounty economy, is if you're looking at working with an organization and trying to do responsible disclosure, it's an incredible pain in the ass. We've talked about it on the show before, where you submit something to the vendor, the vendor comes back to you, says you don't know what you're talking about. You respond back with proof of exploitation, packet captures and everything. They demand more data. Then they call you once they confirmed that it's a real exploit. Then they call you up and they're like, okay, so how do we fix this? And you're like, well, crap, this just became free consulting. So that's not a good place to be. Plus the whole bug bounty marketplace, a lot of these companies, whenever they have a bug like this that comes up, they'll send you a $100 gift certificate to Chipotle and a t-shirt. So it's a lot of burritos. 
It is a lot. It actually is a lot of burritos. I'm actually kind of hungry. Do they plan ahead and like send you a t-shirt that's like the next size up as well? Yeah, they actually um, do. It's just a way this, to like piss you off. It's like, well, here's your small shirt. I, I, I'm not small. I, I want a large. Here's your extra small shirt. Just at you at that yeah. point. John, oh. isn't this pretty much a failed game, though? So think about it this way, right? So not to defend Apple or get into their, like, you know, to think they're doing it right or wrong or whatever, but think about it like this, right? It doesn't matter how much they pay, right? Don't you think there's probably some nation state who's willing to pay a little more, right? And then here comes the other, like, you know, capitalist side is, you know, how much does Apple care about this, right? Like, should they, you know, be investing every dollar they have to you know, make this security better. And you may say, yes, they should be. Absolutely. They should be out buying everybody. But, you know, it's kind of a when it becomes a market and not just, yeah, it's I don't know if they're ever going to win this game. I don't know if they'll ever pay as much as, uh, you know, NSO group would or, plus, you know. An- plus, I think that these things have been happening for so long and yeah. they actually have this detailed. Uh, D- uh, David Rice is one of the people that works at Apple's security team. And he wrote the book uh, uh, Geekonomics, kind of a play on words of Freakonomics, but it was basically Geekonomics and the cost, true cost of insecure software. And he works there, right? That's what he does. And his entire book, if you read it, which is a fascinating book and you should go read it, it's a little bit old, but it's awesome, is basically calculating the costs associated with insecure software and what the overall impact is to an organization. So I guarantee you, that they have done the calculation of how much they spend on security to get to a certain level of security that they're comfortable with. Because if something like this happens, this looks like a nation state attack, right? NSO group sells to nation states. They just basically, eh, it's an act of God, install the patch, they move on. Their stock price isn't hit. Users buying their product isn't hit. So they're absolutely doing those calculations. No question whatsoever. I mean, what else would you buy too? Like what other cell phones? Like, it's not like we have like five different vendors out there that are offering better security too. So, it, you know, as a, yeah, you know, like that becomes into like a bigger subject. Like as a consumer, you're like, oh, well, I'm going to get the most secure phone ever. And it's really just some Chinese knockoff that says secure on it. Right. So um, I, have those conversations, <laughs> I have those conversations with family members that aren't in the business all the time. Where they're like, well, I run Android because it's more secure. And then I had other people like, well, I like Apple because at least they care about security. I'm like, it doesn't quite work that way. But yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, that's one of the things that I like on the other end of the, of the spectrum because this is targeting activists, targeting reporters. And people are like, do I need to worry about uh, Pegasus and the ISL group? No, but it gives an opportunity for people to start having those conversations about mobile device security. You have the general public, like John said, you know, friends and family that are asking about Apple security, you know, iPhone security. You're able to start having those conversations. So this entering that uh, public domain, public knowledge, getting a lot more of, uh, of those that don't live and die by information security, asking questions about uh, cell phones. Great opportunity to have conversations. I, I, I see what you're saying, Alex, but I would also say, I mean... I don't know that you, you that those people can say like are, I'm not a target of, of yeah. Pegasus possibly because I mean they, there has been talks of NSO group selling to possibly or at least attempting to sell to police stations. What if we, we what if they sold to the Minneapolis police station here not too terribly long ago and they had that at their disposal and they said hmm I've, I've got this person here who I, I think is is causing issues. Eh, let's just push the button. Absolutely. 
uh, can can you really because the whole the whole thing that revolves around this is like any system this good gets abused uh well, at some okay, point so so okay so a couple of things about local law enforcement right so we've had a number of cases that have been publicly released where these groups have actually directly sold to local law enforcement. You know, dirt bag or dirt boxes, dirt bags, and stingrays for LTE cell phone uh, interception. Um, usually, that's something that's on, only available to nation states where you can stand up your own LTE cell tower, and it gives you right. full interception and tracking capability in something like a stingray. Right now, that's usually available to, like I said, military, DoD, IC. But there have been instances where companies have been selling devices like that to local law enforcement. And I know that here in South Dakota with the pipeline protests, those were actually in use where various highway patrol organizations were flying around and intercepting people's cell phone communications. At least that's what's alleged. Right. But the problem with that really goes down to if you're working with the FBI, if you're working with the CIA, if you're working with the NSA, They have very, very clearly defined rules of engagement and what they're allowed to do and not allowed to do. They have entire groups of people that are fretting constantly about FISA warrants and all this types of data that they can and cannot intercept under what circumstances, what locations and citizens and blue force data and all that. Whenever you get to local law enforcement, these guys tend to get this equipment and they're like, well, this is awesome. I can set it up outside my house and I can, you know, track all this information that's going for my, my wife's cell phone. Like that crap happens. So if you have something like NSO that's selling directly to local law enforcement, there is no really nice framework at a national level in the United States that basically governs how they're to use these things short of the Constitution. And most of the time, you wouldn't even know that these things are being utilized by local law enforcement. So I think that there is a problem with this type of these these types of things being sold to people that have no right using these things. Another example of it would be law enforcement that has like, you know, armored personnel vehicles that are basically better than what we had in Afghanistan and Iraq. And they're buying those and they're small towns of 50,000 people in the Midwest. <laughs> what a living hell are you going to do with that? Serve warrants. Yeah, serve warrants. A really good friend of mine, he actually did uh, two tours in Afghanistan and one in Iraq. And we were like standing next to some police officers downtown and they had it out there. And he's like, what the hell are you doing with that? And he's like, well, you never know, right? Or something like a breakout. He's like, I've been in war zones and that's nicer than anything we ever had in a war zone. What are you going to do with that? Well, it looks pretty badass. I mean, really, this gets into arming local police. And I think it touches on that much larger meta issue as well. We're going to go pit them with this thing. Pit them. You're going to run them over like a goddamn Bigfoot. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I I think that there is concerns about this. But one of the concerns that, you know, I see in the, the conversation I wanted to open up to you all is, there's people that say, well, the United States government shouldn't be working in exploits in zero days at all. And I think that that's a crap argument. If the United States government isn't actively buying and developing exploits constantly for everything, then I honestly don't know what the hell my tax dollars are being used for. <laughs> Can I get a refund yeah. if you guys aren't doing that? I, get a refund. I demand at least five exploits per month, U.S. government. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I, think, can... I think to some people, like, it's an obvious, you're like, Oh yeah, I really, I really hope that the U.S. isn't doing that kind of stuff. That 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 would be terrible. <laughs> um, I really hope like, they are. 
Yeah, but like at the same point, that you you live in a fantasy land if that's if that's what you're saying. I mean, we we need that. It's the game. Other countries are playing the game. We it, you, you either join the game or you get ran over by the by the up armored APC that your local. Yeah, locker. exactly. Yeah. Uh, one way to go. I only I only keep one bowl of my gun and one round in the howitzer. <laughs> So. <laughs> you can just buy the Librem phone with all the the physical hardware kill switches for LTE oh, data. Yes, please, please. This is this is just what I've been waiting for—a new phone that's supposedly so secure that it, it's going to just. Yeah. Oh God, I can't wait to use the interface. It's going to be amazing. Yeah, that's that's the thing, right? It, it it goes back to the chocolate thing. It's like, will you give me your password for a bar of chocolate? Hell yes. Yeah. Here, I give you a completely secure phone. Awesome. How how do I play Angry Birds? Oh, you yeah. can't. Uh, Can I get Snapchat on it? N- no. No. I can't copy TikTok. TikTok? What? Huh. Huh. Well, I don't. Uh, screw it. I'm going back to my iPhone. This thing's actually help? useless to me. Zero, like, it has zero function. I, I don't, Wait, I don't so, want so it. So what can it do? It, it can make phone call. Oh. Well then, that doesn't. What like That's I want not it to why I buy a cell phone. I don't yeah, buy a cell phone to make phone calls. Phone, why would I buy a cell phone to make phone calls? That's ridiculous. Oh, well, I guess we're screwed. I guess that's the message. All right, next story. <laughs> oh, that's true. The message, real quick, John. Though I mean, we did just, we did kind of touch on this, um, but yeah. we NSO Group's business strategy of having to constantly develop updates, and they sell this Pegasus to to their nation states and such, right? The actual exploit was in Apple's iOS 14 Blastdoor, which was released in like the end of January this year. So this exploit is relatively fresh anyhow, um, and it's burned now. So they're have, they have to go develop yet another exploit, and this is the challenge that they're fighting over there too. Well, so they don't they don't develop them; they buy them and they resell well, them, and they make sure. money being the middleman, just like every other large company that I can think of. Off the top but, of my but they head. promise their customers up. that it always works. And... I'm going to stand up for NSO Group here. They do buy them, yes, but they also have the skills internally to develop them as well. I mean, so however they, they get it. Yep, they have. Same, with, same look, with the U.S. government. They develop so, them, so they buy them. Like they... <laughs> so let me put it this way. Imagine your NSO Group and you're buying exploits, right? You're going to need to have the technical capability to actually vet those exploits. But then you sure. also find out that as soon as the doors open in a specific exploit area, if you have your own internal resources that you're paying really well, they can then do follow on exploits. So I can almost guarantee that they have other exploits in their bag of tricks. But yeah, trust me, they, they have people that work there that are incredibly solid, amazing security researchers. Absolutely. But, I guess I was just looking at the turnover. I mean, this, like I said, just came out the end of January this year, and now they have awesome. to find a new one. That's now, the game. final note on on that. The macOS Big Sur also had an update, which seems like it was related to the same exploit, uh, as far as I can tell. But the, that wasn't getting much news. So just if you have if you're a Mac user, update macOS as well. And there's a 10.6. I For me, it wasn't showing up for me for a few days. But worst case, you can go to the App Store and get the full installer, and it will update. Well, my understanding is that Blastdoor is in iMessages messaging like app system, yeah. so that is installed well, on Mac. Yeah, and they're tr- they're trying to break down the barriers between you know mobile and desktop and laptops as yeah. much as possible, which makes sense for them, right? Having a it's unified arm and only one to maintain is a good thing. 
So let's talk about uh, Windows Subsystem for Linux. Uh, I like this particular story because, um, well, you like Windows. <laughs> well, I like Windows a lot, right? But they let the in a lot of light. Is we've been using Windows Subsystem for Linux for malware deployment since about 2016. Like literally, Not according to this article. Yeah, like as soon as we no, as it's soon new. As it came out, we're, we're like immediately like you know, hey, well, um, you can you can hide your malware in there, man. And that's just, yeah, if you go back and look at sacred cash cow tipping, I think this was in the first sacred cash cow tipping um, that we did. And there's a number of reasons why Windows Subsystem for Linux is really a good place to put your malware. First and foremost, it's a great place to put your malware because a lot of antivirus engines don't have visibility into it. Now, Windows Defender does. Um, on many installations, if you actually install like Ubuntu or something and then install Metasploit, your AV is going to freak out and start nuking things. You can actually put exceptions to the file that is your Windows subsystem for Linux for like Ubuntu or Kali. And I do recommend that if you're doing it. Um, but something as simple as like a, a basic Netcat listening backdoor works like an absolute champ um, and has for a long time. And that worked even with Windows subsystem for Linux 1. It works even better now with 2. And one of the reasons why we started doing this a long, long, long time ago is one, it's from Microsoft. And two, it's available in the Microsoft Store, so it makes it easy for us to deploy it and have a nice persistent backdoor. The other thing that a lot of people aren't aware of is Windows Subsystem for Linux has the ability to mount the C drive of the host computer system and access all the files on the computer system. So that's just some of the reasons why we've been using Windows Subsystem for Linux. Um, one of the things that sucks about WSL is some versions of Windows Server really don't support WSL 2 yet, which is kind of a bummer. Um, but they do support WSL 1. It's kind of weird. This is one of those stories where you see it pop up and you're like, really? Like, we've been, we've been doing this crap for like, like six years now, and it's just now popping up? Well, huh. are, are, yeah, you, but, are, you, are you like saying that this quote from Black Lotus is not correct when they say that, to our knowledge, this small set of samples denotes the first instance of an actor abusing WSL to install subsequent <laughs> payloads? Yeah, yeah, it, 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 that is an incorrect statement. Um, <laughs> disappointment. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So um, WSL two though brought an actual it's Hyper V really. So just for anybody, like at first it was like kind of a a subsystem where it was kind of emulating a Linux environment. Now it's just Hyper V. So when you do WSL two, you're actually running a virtual machine. Um, but yeah, they're not scanning it, and yeah, big surprise if you ran a virtual machine. It's just a it's like having built in VMware workstation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. In your Windows. And it works really well. And I think that yeah. Microsoft is talking more and more and more of building this in to the operating system moving forward. Like they want more tighter integration between Microsoft and the, the WSL or Hyper-V as you were talking about as well. And don't forget Android apps. Oh, crap. Yeah, yeah. we get pretty soon Android malware. We'll uh, I can't <laughs> wait. It'll be Android ransomware. Slow, Java, but fun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the guidance they provided for like use proper logging that goes to an article from like 2016. Uh, so, so, you know, and it says right at the top like we're not we're not updating or supporting this content anymore. You know, we're no longer updating this content regularly. So there's just that lack of guidance. So so certainly is, some it's some that, need for better guidance on on what does proper logging and how, and solving this entail. I, I, I'm surprised they didn't say proper logging and patching. Uh, you should do those two things and uh, get a firewall too. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. That's almost like a tack on at the end. 
you know, I, I know this being offensive, right? You get so excited about the offensive side. And then the person from Tom's Hardware or whatever like, art place broke the story first. This interview him says, so what do you recommend to defend against this type of attack? Caught him completely off guard, right, in the interview. Yep. They're like, uh, uh, deer in the headlights. And they're like, I like turtles. Uh, it's like proper <laughs> logging, I guess. I didn't they're like, quick, find an article about proper logging. How <laughs> do you uninstall? I don't care. Use it. How to uninstall WSL, too. That, that'll be it. Yeah, that'll be the I next mean. thing. That that should have been what they talked about. Actually, I mean, honestly, yeah. that is the answer. Do you need yeah, it is. Then yeah, don't no, turn for, it on. Yeah, for real, that should be a hardening. Sh- I was Go just going to say that should be a hardening procedure. Like you should just you know remove WSL two, and that that should just be part of the process, right? So yep. there, yeah, Absolutely. and you and you should have you should have implementation for uh, detecting if it is installed. Yeah, I, I I I keep looking at this though. Anytime you recommend that, I'm like. But we're pen testers and we use it and we love it so much. Please <laughs> yeah. don't make it go away. No. Well, that, it's I, all I had. Pen- it's all I had. It's the, yeah, it's on the, the defensive side, you, you look at, you know, not just WSL, but that Windows Store just for a lot of things that are deny listed in an environment. And you go, okay, but I can go over here to the Windows Store, load all yes. the stuff in Windows Subsystem for Linux, and I can get past the deny list that you have in your environment and go, Oh, what's that? I can't run Python. Oh, let me just load this through the Windows Store, and you allow it because it's Microsoft and it's WSL. And you go, I'm running Python now, and all of our <laughs> policies and controls say I'm not supposed to be able to do that. I'm running and, Linux. And, and and the fun thing about the Windows Store is is that when you install stuff from the Windows Store, it goes into a folder in Program Files that is oh, yeah. only accessible by trusted installer. Like, system can't even really see what's going on with it. Trusted installer is the only thing that can really see what's going on with the apps launched by the Windows Store. And, exactly. and the other thing to keep in mind is every time someone uses the Microsoft Store, a bell goes off in Redmond. And they're like, no one's using our store. They're installing something on their Windows system instead of using Steam, everybody. I'm like, what is it? Oh, it looks like malware. Oh. We'll take it. You know? It's the same when someone opens up Edge, right? Every time someone opens up Edge, like, what? They're using counts. it. It's happening. It's happening. They're like watching them type, and it's like Google Chrome download link. <laughs> Enter. <laughs> Which is funny because Edge is actually just Chrome now. They they gave right. up. They gave up. Yeah. They were just like, no, yeah, no, no. We pull. I yeah. I, I do. Like how many of you up and before the new version of Edge? Because I use it now on my Linux system and on my Windows system because it works really well. How many of you for the longest time, that was the first thing you would do? Like as soon as you spin up a new VM that's Windows 10, you're like, okay, installing Firefox or Chrome. <laughs> right out of the actually, right, Yeah. I'll actually admit, John, like I, I hated the legacy edge, as they call it now, so much that I would just go find IE and then go download Chrome. Oh, my God. That's <laughs> I, would, I would I would I preferred IE over the legacy edge. So I would I wouldn't even open edge when I first set up a computer. I would just go straight to IE. I'm like, oh, the, the devil, you know. Oh, my so God. That's, that's uh, petty, not, not not to change everyone's process, but you should install chocolatey first. Right. Yeah, that it's is package actually managed. one of the things. Yeah, it's the package manager for Windows. And then after that, you can just say Coco install Google Chrome or whatever it is. And then you never have to go like, you know, chase it all down for the rest of your life. So although pro tip. there is Winget in yeah. Windows yeah. now, which yeah. I love using that. NuGet. <laughs> NuGet. Okay. 
Nougat, nu- and nougat. Okay. Yeah, it's tasty. Yeah, it's like candy bars. You know how it goes, right? They all have to be candy. Yeah. All right. So I've got a. I've, the next story I want to talk about is U.S. to target crypto ransomware payments, and I want to. I want to start this out with a question. So in two days, I'm going to a high school debate team, and we're going to talk about ransomware. We're going to talk about cryptocurrency, and the debate topic in high school is the United States government should be doing more to regulate cryptocurrencies. And I'm, I'm trying to get my head around, like, and even this article talking about it, you know, U.S. to targets crypto ransomware payments. How? I mean, I mean, yeah. seriously, like, yeah. how in the hell? And, and I'd love to get your opinion on this because I need to come up with an answer because whenever you're doing debate, you have to do pro and con. You have to be prepared for both sides. And for me, I'm like, one, this is stupid. Two, you can't control it. Three, it's completely designed that way to be decentralized. But on the other side, if I'm going to say, no, we should be actually going through and regulating cryptocurrency, how? Like, how the hell would this be done short of completely trying to shut the protocols down on the internet? So it, I don't know. What are you guys' take on this? Yeah, that's the thing, though. It's it's completely, and I mean, I'll take the easy one because Ralph can handle the harder ones. He, he knows more about yeah, this. Yeah, good call. Um, but yeah. like, it, it's from the ground up, it's designed like, when they were making it, they were like, hey, what's a currency we can make that's not regulated by governments? That that's not regulated by any one like authoritative body. That that's what we that's our goal, and that's what we're going to try to make. Now with now people are like, well, how can we regulate this? And you you can't. It was designed to not be regulated. Like you couldn't. Well, and you have people saying we should tax their cryptocurrency earnings. Well, naturally. <laughs> I mean, why it, it's taxes. I mean but, but how? <laughs> They're like, Mr. Strand, we noticed that you had these 15 wallets that have this much cryptocurrency. And I'm like, wow, I was wondering where those wallets went. I I don't know. Ralph, do you, do you drop some insight on this, man? Because you're on the CoinSec podcast and you know more yeah. than we do. Like, explain, like, how the hell would you regulate this? I, I don't know if you can. I, I don't think you can. From the tax debate, though, I mean, everybody has voluntary tax. Like, the tax law is a tax law. And it's all voluntary, by the way. Like, we just happen, you know, if you get a W-2, they take it out. So, like, you're supposed to report, like, and you're supposed to know the rules. Like, that's your, you know, responsibility. So, um, you know, as far as the not paying taxes part, you know, that's a law, right? Like, if you want someone to pay more taxes for money that they earn via crypto, then you would change the tax law, right? That's what it is. Um, but it's your responsibility to do that, um, not necessarily technical controls. But as far as back to the original question, how would you actually regulate this? We don't – it's like uh, Noah said it best. We don't – it was designed to not be regulated in that sense, right? And any uh, any cryptocurrency that is under control over the government, meaning the government has like full control over it, nobody's going to want to use it. Just like the dollar. If, you, if the government, every time you wanted to spend the dollar, like, you know, somebody came by and told you what to, I don't know. It It's the yeah. whole point, right? So like, let's say you succeed, hypothetically, if, if, you, if you succeed, then everyone's going to leave because it doesn't do what it's advertised to do. Yeah. Well, so, but I, I think some of the ways they could do is they could target the exchanges, right? And maybe try to get the exchanges to force, like, they have to actually, like, disclose tax documentation. So they're already coming out with ways kind of to, to, so, yes, the exchange is like the on-ramp, right? Think of it getting on the interstate. But once you're on the interstate or you have cryptocurrency of some sort, you can now exchange those in decentralized exchanges that don't require uh, a company like Coinbase to make that that operation happen. I so. totally get that, but I think what they're banking on is that 98% of the population 
that's into crypto, they're going to be using those exchanges because it's easy. Yeah. And sure. yeah, you can absolutely off-road and you can do it on your own. And it's not that hard. <clears throat> Excuse me. But I think that that's one of the things that they're thinking about yeah. as a possibility. But I don't think that that's going to stop like these 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 attackers yeah. like Revil. I, I, I They're not going to be, well, crap, they got us. We have all of our stuff on Binance. So they got us. Uh, I, it's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Um, I, it I almost seems like, it's just, like it, 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 they just they, they do, do not understand at a fundamental level like what a huge change this is whenever we're talking about cryptocurrency. They do not understand it. They somehow believe if they can legislate it, then automatically, magically, they're going to get tax dollars. <sighs> they're going to be able to regulate it. But everything I'm reading about the United States government doing this, it shows me that they fundamentally do not understand the problem. You want to know why Bitcoin is worth $40,000 right now? It's because you can't just turn it off. It's because you can't just regulate it. Like those are the things that are like the, the, the point, right? And so to come in and just be like, you know what? I think we could fix this. It's like, yeah. Well, I love some of the solutions, like creating a centralized cryptocurrency regulated by the government. Like you said earlier, that's that's the antithesis of what this whole thing Go is. Go ahead so, and make it. See it. see how see how well the adoption rates are on it. Well, Back. and Tom asked a question. I'm going to throw this once again. I'm going to throw this over to Ralph. Uh, Tom asked a question. Did did Venezuela get it right or wrong with Bitcoin? I don't know. From what I've read so far, it seemed like that was uh, not necessarily like for the better of everyone like in the country. And honestly, my personal opinion about like Bitcoin as a form of payment is I think it's kind of horrible. It's kind of like, you know, Internet 1.0 kind of like, you know, Netscape Navigator and GeoCities, right? Like, you know, it's kind of there and, you know, it's kind of useful, but it's not nearly the same websites we visit today, right? And I think that Bitcoin as a, as a, you know, a currency for instant trades to buy things, you know, of small amounts, it's, it's not uh, super convenient, even though there are ways that they're trying to make it all work. But cryptocurrencies in general, yes, they're definitely going to be here to stay. And there's going to be, you know, um, who wins, who knows. But uh, Bitcoin by itself is not necessarily like super easy, right? You yeah. know, right off the bat. Yeah. On the flip side of that, I can buy Chinese food from the local Chinese restaurant with Ethereum. <laughs> yeah, that's, that sounds good. Chinese food sounds really yummy. So another fun thing about these taxes, just a quick story, Craig Wright, people that are watching this, uh, Craig Wright is running around telling everyone that he invented Bitcoin and he may or may not have invented Bitcoin. There's very strong opinions on the side of saying he didn't, even Dan Kaminsky before he died, uh, was kind of pigpiling on uh, Craig Wright too. And by the way, Craig Wright is a friend of mine. I don't mind saying that, but I'm also going to say that Craig Wright is one of the most insane, weird friends that I've ever had. He has multiple sand certs, been around in circles with him for years. And one of the things that's interesting about Craig Wright is as soon as he came out and he said, I, I'm Satoshi and I created Bitcoin, all of a sudden the Australian government is like, wait a minute, if you own Bitcoin, then we know all of these wallets over here with this much money are yours and you have <laughs> this much money and they actually like raided his house and all kinds of things. So, you know, this isn't the idea of the government getting involved is not something that's far fetched. Like it literally happened in Australia with Craig Wright. Um, now, to be completely honest, I don't know if Craig Wright created Bitcoin, honestly, because like I said, nuts, but really cool guy to hang out with. So how do you tax that? 
Because if imagine that you're at the beginning of Bitcoin, right? And you're just spinning up all these different coins and you're mining and you're getting all this stuff. And you're just like using wallets, disposing wallets, getting rid of them, getting rid of passwords because you're researching, you're developing, you're building this entire thing out. And somehow you amass these thousands and thousands and thousands of coins and they're worth nothing when you do it. And now all of a sudden today, they're worth billions of dollars and you don't have the wallets anymore. You don't have the passwords. You can't gain access to them whatsoever. Like how the hell do taxes handle that, right? Well, right now they're taxed as a um, like an asset, not a currency. So think of it just like a stock, right? So you bought yeah. uh, you know a share of a company, and you actually uh, don't pay taxes. By the way, I'm not an accountant, but this is what I understand: you don't pay taxes on that until you gain or realize a gain, or technically you could realize a loss as well, right? Uh, meaning when you sell said asset, um, when you make money, then you would pay you know, an income tax on that. You would pay capital gains, which is the rich person tax, which is actually a bit less than conventional uh, W-2, whatever taxes. So but that's, that's how we currently do it. That's yep, the United that's States. The US. That's currently how we do it right now. Um, and then to one other point that you brought up is that uh, minus the losing of the wallets, which is a really interesting concept because you could be like, yes, I had that wallet, but I don't have the password. So I guess I don't have that money anymore. But uh, because it's a blockchain, auditing it is super easy. You'd be TurboTax blockchain, right? Just plug in your addresses <laughs> and it calculates it out. I mean, sorry to, you know, buzzword a company that's probably going to do this, but, um, you know, yeah, that's it. <laughs> I mean, it, it makes it easier. Yeah, it makes Someone it easier. Someone at TurboTax is like, I just got the best idea. <laughs> I know. This is brilliant. Where did this come from? No, nowhere. Turbo, nowhere. TurboTax nowhere. blockchain edition. It's going to be amazing. No, that, um, wait, wait for it. It's going to happen. And I think it's so, going to happen within the next 24 months. So, all right. Just step, just to back to this article, though, right? Just to like kind of bring it back around. So we are talking about would this affect ransomware? Because I think the, the edifice for this is not just the taxing, but it's to like hopefully take away the payment system that these groups have, right? To to do ransomware, so they'll stop doing ransomware. Is that what the article was about, right? Yeah, I, but, okay. I, but I think that that's, that's the ultimate goal, right? The, the United States government is trying to find a way to stop this. And I think that they're, they're going to quickly come to the conclusion, just rightly so, they're going to come to the conclusion that the only lever that they're going to have that they can pull is the lever that allows them to punish organizations who pay. And I'm terrified about whenever we actually get to that point where we basically start penalizing the victims. You know, we never negotiate with terrorists and, oh, well, your company got hit by ransomware and you had to go out of business. Well, thanks for taking one for the team. That's not going to stop ransomware, right? It's just going to basically make things harder in the industry as a whole. So I, I don't know. The government's trying to jump in. They're trying to do something about this. But once again, I, I feel like they feel like they have to do something but they don't understand it. And to be honest, most people in the industry, even myself, I don't feel like I understand this at a level that I feel comfortable with. The idea of trying to create legislation around it right now at the early stage, I just think is a really bad call. Yeah, I, I heard I heard about cryptocurrency. I'm writing a law right now to fix it. I totally got this. I, yeah. 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 I got it. Yeah, yeah. How that, that's pretty much what's happened. I heard, I heard a name on one podcast and we got to fix it. And I, I'm the guy, I got, I got this. these I experts, got this Ralph. I got these yep. experts from TurboTax. Uh, they're, they're, really, they're really amazing at this whole cryptocurrency thing. They um, invented the blockchain. 
the the other thing though is I, I said it before, John, but I, I'm going to say it again real quick. Like even when we talk about penalizing private companies who pay the ransoms, they, realistically, the government has no uh, historical precedent to be like, oh, you 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 got hit with ransomware, I'll just die now. I mean, it, maybe for smaller companies, but what when what, what is it when it's a bigger company? You know what what happens when you know a large auto manufacturer uh, happens to get hit with ransomware and hundreds of thousands of people are going to lose their jobs because they they said, oh, I guess you just have to roll over and take it now. They're not going to do that. They can't. Yeah, and they, and they factor that into their calculations as well. Yeah. They go, we're down and we're losing X amount of money. So both the financial hit from fines and then also like the shame hit from, you know, sanctions, you go, or we just stay down and we start walking people out the door because... We're, we're down people are out of business we impact livelihood and just all the business stuff you say we're losing millions of dollars per day by being down or we can pay this and mm -hmm. oh no the government comes after us and do people uh, care that we paid the ransom i just you know, think it's interesting people want their money back you know if it's a banking <laughs> or a financial industry they're like i don't care give me access to my bank accounts pay whoever you have to uh, and another quick twist on it, just as a thought, what about ransom denial of service attacks? I mean, you're not necessarily down, but you either pay the, like you either wait it out or you pay the ransom like, does that fall into the same thing where it's like, well, sorry. I don't know. I don't know. Mm, well, well, should we go to Pakistan? Uh, yeah. Yeah. We, we could just run on ransom all day. Right. We just yeah. soak it up, dude. Let's go to let's go to something different. You know, we were talking about the true cost of insecure software and kind of the true cost of an insider threat. Um, this is an AP news story. Man sentenced to 12 years in two hundred million dollar phone fraud scheme. So this is one of those interesting things where you when you hear about it, you're like, holy crap, someone did this and like made money at it. And they didn't just make money. They made a crap ton of money at it. So. Whenever you get a phone from like AT&T or Verizon and you're on like that plan to pay off that phone, that phone is actually locked to your plan. What this particular uh, gentleman in Pakistan was doing was he was going through and bribing AT&T employees in a call center in Washington and he was paying them. I think he paid something like nine, there it is, $922,000 in bribes to AT&T employees so that he could unlock phones. Now, if you're thinking about this, it's like, oh, is this, a, is this a couple of phones? Is this one phone? No. <laughs> is this 10 phones? No. Is it 20 phones? Still have to go higher. I think it's something like 1.9 million phones were unlocked. And this scheme, they believe, cost AT&T Two hundred million dollars. Um, if, if we're looking at this, the thing that I think is really, really, really funny about it is that's a that's a big number, right? Two hundred million dollars, but it, it covers a lot of different things, right? It's got the uh, suitcase attack. Like, is your organization secure against a suitcase attack, where someone just pays one of your employees a suitcase full of money to do something malicious? Um, you, know, no. you, you have that insider threat where somebody's actually doing this and this doesn't involve malware, right? This isn't an attack where they're like, you know, load the malware on these computer systems. They were actually doing something that was actively hurting AT&T and all of your standard security alarms and alerts 
wouldn't actually apply. And I think that this is important because it really calls upon us as security practitioners to understand more than just malware, credit cards, social security numbers, and really get down to understanding the business processes and how those things are audited. But yeah, he's going to prison. And there was a quote in here. I, I, I love this where the defendant was uh, basically apologizing over time. I became obsessed with money and any thought that I was doing wrong just disappeared. I didn't know it now then, but I was on a path of self-destruction. And it says, uh, while he apologized, he did not go so far as to help the United States government recover any ill-gotten assets, he noted. They figure he made at least $5.3 million. So I know he's probably thinking right now he'll you know, stay in prison for a short period of time and that money's going to be waiting for him once he gets out. Unless it's in Bitcoin. Yeah. And the government <laughs> regulates yeah. that. Yeah. And he's yeah, got yeah, it. yeah. He has all of his money in Bitcoin and that way he can get it when he gets out. So how was he doing this? So he would buy, I, I kind of get the unlocking part, right? And then he would sell the phone. So like it was, it wasn't stolen, but it just wasn't paid for. And then he would convince them to unlock it so then he could sell the phone. Is that what was going on? I, I think he was doing it as a service. Like the, the way the article reads is that it was a service online that you could like sign up and say, I had a phone from AT&T that oh. I hadn't, hadn't finished paying for all the time. I could just be like, all right, here's the uh, IMEI number. And he could unlock it for me. I mean, and, and then they could switch from AT&T's network to a cheaper network. Is basically yeah, what yeah. Or those, stolen, stolen probably phones were probably pretty hot with that one too. Those yeah. margins are sick. The one point nine million phones for nine hundred twenty-two thousand dollars, like two bucks a phone for yeah. him to get them unlocked and bribes. Like, yeah. It, it, that, and what of the numbers. others? What of the other three that were involved in this? Like, there's three AT and T workers that are involved, and they're just not—they're barely mentioned in the article. Yeah, they're um, not sentenced yet. So, yeah, they're not sentenced also, yet. Also, if you're AT and T, you want to bury this, right, Alex? Yeah. Like, yep. you do not do not talk about the AT and T employees that did this. Like, just don't. We we yeah. we we quietly fired them. Don't talk about it because the more they talk about it, the more it looks like they have some responsibility on this as well. Which yeah, I and, kind of think AT and T does. And that kind of that that also does some damage because then you get companies that don't feel like insider threat is a problem because they never hear of insider threats being problems because something like this, a story comes out, AT and T is burying their involvement. So you have all these companies that go, well, you know, where is insider threat ever really a problem? Where do we have to worry about those suitcase attacks there because that doesn't ever really happen, or we would have heard about it. Uh, so this this does kind of a disservice to never talk about the the, the fact that seventy five percent of the people at fault here were insiders. <laughs> so this this gets me thinking about just John brought this up just right now, just thinking about like the like what if AT and T was involved, right? So what would be the motivation? Like why would they care about this? Maybe they just needed to pump up the amount of subscribers they had, right? And these subscribers then left, and this was just like the tail end of it. I'm not sure, right? And then so they could say, hey, we put in a bunch more subscribers that all ended up leaving. The phones were a piece of it. Who knows? Oh, speaking of insiders, uh, did we talk last week about the NSA employees and the hacker for hire services for Dark Matter? No. I don't recall. I don't think so. Okay. Yeah, I don't think. Well, we I do. think this is a great way to kind of bookend the uh, the show, kind of close out with this article. Um, so we open with NSO Group. We're talking about writing exploits for iPhones, and NSO Group is buying those. Dark Matter is a UAE based company, and they actually specify, or, sorry, specialize 
and very, 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 very smart security people doing very, very, very shady things uh, that normal people can't do. So think InfoSec magicians, and you're getting really, really close to dark matter. And I've got some good friends um, that work at dark matter, and they do some really, really cool work. But once again, this is kind of interesting because they tend to pick up people from like the NSA. They tend to pick up people that used to work for um, other pen testing firms in the United States. They hire incredibly competent people. And in this particular situation, you had a couple of uh, people that worked for Dark Matter that actually were former NSA employees and they violated, uh, they actually violated export controls associated with requiring companies and individuals to obtain special licenses from the State Department uh, Directorate of Defense trade controls before providing defense-related services to a foreign government. And uh, these three men, uh, they were all men, yes, these three men were actually writing zero days for iOS. Um, So they're writing tools Karma and Karma 2, which are zero-click exploits. So the reason why, why I bring this up is if you're actually doing this type of research, You've got to be careful who you're selling this to. Because even if you're looking at NSO, NSO is an Israeli company and Dark Matter is UAE. And if you have those skills, you're here in the United States and you worked with the United States government in any fashion, even if you were or were not writing exploits but working in security, you've got to be really careful in the skills that you take and where you take those skills whenever you go on the road. Also... This company also, they also do stuff for the United States government. So it's like, yeah, that was bad that, when they yeah. did that there. But if they did it for yeah. us, it was fine. Yeah, no, I was going to say, this is pretty much one of those, um, you know, they uh, were playing for the wrong team. And uh, this is the repercussions of doing that, right? Wasn't Project Raven sent by the U.S. to the UAE to, like, establish this? And then Dark Matter born from Project Raven? Oh, uh, there's a little bit more to it with Dark Matter. Right. Big strokes. Sure. Yeah, that was like the two sentence abbreviation, but yeah. Yeah. But but this does this does really like I'm wondering if this is a shot across the bow of dark matter. Like, once again, I haven't talked to anybody there about this specific thing whatsoever. But what's interesting for me is there's a lot of people at Dark Matter and other companies that are former NSA or intelligence employees. Is this kind of a shot across the bow? Like you said, hey, you're playing for the other team. That's not cool. Um, yeah. Or it was cool whenever we said it was cool. And now we're very much saying it's not cool anymore. Um, <laughs> this is it, it gets confusing if you have these skills where you're going to do it. So I think that a lot of people are just going to be like, F it. We're just going to go to bug bounty programs or ransomware. We can make money doing that. We don't have to deal with it. <laughs> I mean, this is this is uh, U.S. government you know, repercussions 101, right? So how do you affect somebody that you technically don't have control over? You do sanctions, right? And that's, Mm -hmm. that's usually what happens. And, you know, on top of that, you look into practices that are maybe affected by sanctions, or you produce sanctions, and then, then, then get them in trouble for validating those sanctions, you know? So yeah, that sounds like what we're dealing with here. Um, You know, for better, for worse, you know, we don't obviously have all the details. But yes, um, we don't approve of what you're doing and this is how we are telling you and yeah this is the way they're telling you it's like (laughs) yes i gotta say the united states government needs to work on its communication skills just a little bit here (laughs) um the fines fines are ridiculous seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars for one for uh mark uh ryan is at six hundred thousand and daniel is at three hundred and thirty five thousand dollars that they have to pay over three years to avoid prison 
um, which I'm Ooh. hoping Dark Matter steps in and covers those costs for those employees. But yeah, either that or they're going to go into like some small room just developing exploits and hopefully making enough yeah. to pay it back. You know, you see Dark Matter being like, "Here's your chain. We're going to change it to your desk. And let's get us three exploits. We'll pay it off. We need but three, no, big buddy. Three. <laughs> we need three. We need three. But this also gets to coal fire. The coal fire example in uh, in Adel, Iowa. It, seriously, if somebody is working for you. I don't care what country you're in. If they're doing stuff for you and then they end up with fines or things like that, kind of think as a company, you're sort of obligated to cover your employees and, and take care of them. It's just kind of my way of thinking. You may be a better person than these other people. Who knows? Yeah, until it happens. I'm really glad us, you mentioned that, my John. Just just yeah, actually, yeah. I have to tell you something. <laughs> you know, I was on a meeting I and I, I got a speeding ticket. Fine, John, so uh, you tick, I got you on the webcast saying that you'd pay for it. Like about that, well, um, yeah. I hope I hope I have that strength whenever the time comes to do that. God give me this strength. God give me this strength. God give me the strength to bail my employees out when they get arrested. All right, everybody, let's let's take it out, uh, Ryan. Thank you so much, everybody, for joining this week. We'll see you next week. <laughs>